Welcome to the Seventh Art Podcast. My name is Christopher Heron. I'm the host of the Seventh Art. It's a video magazine and podcast about cinema. I'm joined here today with uh, the other two thirds of the Seventh Art, Brian Robertson and Pavan Mundi. So Paul Schrader was our second guest in the live director series uh, where we bring a filmmaker to Toronto to screen and discuss their work. In this case, we brought Paul to discuss Taxi Driver, um, which was something that we were forced to do because there were no available prints for any of the films he's directed, and only one of them's on Blu-ray. We had a sold-out screening of that. What we actually wanted to do, Pavan, maybe you could discuss this a little bit, was to show the now-released canyons right so uh well it was it was great that we got taxi driver we uh was sold DCP? out 400 uh seats 420? Yeah. 420 seats it was a great atmosphere in the theater uh but we did want to screen uh the canyons and this would have been in april of 2013 at that point right. the canyons had been written about in the new york times article uh and it had kind of at that point famously been uh rejected from sundance and south by southwest right so we really wanted to get uh, the world premiere of the canyons and paul was down and we were very interested in doing it it would be a receptive environment right and ifc i think was on the fence and we went kind of back and forth with them for about a week or so and uh, ultimately they decided against it, but they did allow us to screen a six minute exclusive clip from the canyons, which was still a big deal because at that point uh, there was no official trailer. There was just those grindhouse and noir and those ones that kind of made it look like stylized trailers. They were kind of feeding the prejudice that it was a bad film by suggesting that the only way they could release footage was to like make it seem campy and a joke and put black and white filters and film grain filters over top. Right, so uh, we screened the clip, uh, it was pretty well received, uh, we screened Taxi Driver and then we had a, we threw a party as well, a reception, and had dinner uh, with Paul, uh, but before all of that is when we recorded this interview, which yeah, we was shortly after we, we picked up Paul up at the airport, we went for brunch and then we shot this interview. Yeah, we learned our lesson with the first live director series which is it's good to get the recorded interview in the bag before everything we met with paul we had brunch we had some time to settle in and then we we filmed this interview that you're about to listen to where we talked about all of his films um and the canyon so if you've had a chance to see it uh, paul goes in depth on some of his decisions as a filmmaker in that film and uh yeah paul is just generally a great guy i think uh, brian and him developed a, a particular bond maybe brian could speak to there's no bond really i we had a conversation about how he doesn't like baseball and uh a conversation about his kids and his daughter just got married and i don't know he was he was cool um i guess what i'll note is that he did have the cannons on him which was kind of a kicker because we filmed the interview at a bar uh, on Queen Street called Happy Child and uh, after the interview Paul invited us all up to his hotel which is at the he was staying at the Drake the Drake Hotel just down the street and uh, invited us all up to, to watch the canyons quickly we just figured that maybe there was a chance that he would be willing to screen that film that file in the theater after Taxi Driver but uh, it didn't, we didn't, it never... It was also risky because we knew the event was going to be sold out and that so many people wanted to see Taxi Driver. That yeah, could have yeah. been an uproar, potentially. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the one of the early things that we were talking about was uh, with the IFC was that uh, we would screen Taxi Driver uh, 
And then we would screen the canyons after Taxi Driver without telling anyone. And uh, IFC, as Pavan had said, was really close to uh, greenlighting that, but it didn't work out. Um, but canyons, it just came out. Uh, Pavan, you've seen it. Um, I heard it do great things. I, I heard it do yeah, great. I think all the hatred for it is unwarranted. Yeah, James Dean's apparently do. really great. I thought in he it. was really great. Yeah, in yeah, it. I heard that. Uh, and that was where everyone was. I mean, obviously, Lindsay. Um, people were suspicious of her. I think a lot of the people that are writing about the canyons are not film fans. They are people who cover Lindsay Lohan in in like the gossip rags. I think that our friend Cal Marsh has a really good article that just investigates how people are writing about the film mm -hmm. and how if you just analyze what they're saying, they're never really commenting on the film and you can see that they're already against it and they're just finding ways to like say that it's a bad film without actually giving reasons. Um, so this is the interview with Paul. Um, I'll say that uh, it's a really interesting interview. Um, it kind of works as like a, a Schrader on Schrader of sorts. It was made to supplement. Yeah, exactly. Uh, me and Chris had just finished reading Shader on Shader. Chris together. We were. Dope. Yeah, we were. We, uh, we would call one another night. at night, both with the book in hand, <laughs> <laughs> discussing. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, transcendental style, of course. And um, there's some interesting bits on Shader in Raging Bulls, Easy Riders, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Yeah, and we use those as our template, and we have some good stories. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoy them. I was thinking we'd start with the canyons and then sure. loop back chronologically. Absolutely. So, was it, is it true that you approached uh, Brett Easton Ellis to start the canyons? Is that what the first uh, inception point of? Well, what happened was that uh, uh, we were going to do a film uh, called Bait. Hmm. Um, a kind of a, a shark movie in, in Puerto Rico with Anton Yelchin and Emmy Rossum and uh, with Spanish money. And that money uh, collapsed with the problems of the Euro about five weeks before we were supposed to start. And so I sent uh, Brett an email, which is in fact on our um, Facebook page, mm. and basically you know, telling them what had happened and then just saying, um, you know, why don't we just do something? Um, the, uh, <clears throat> you know, what you do, and it was not that expensive, you know. Uh, you know, good-looking people doing bad things and nice rooms. <laughs> and um, uh, <clears throat> you write something, I'll direct it, we'll pay for it. And uh, we don't have to deal with censorship or any of this. Don't have to deal with permissions. Don't have to give, have an A-list of actors. We just make it. Mm. And that's um, how it started. And uh, you know, we were both at a place where we were feeling kind of frustrated by the new economics of movie making in which you know, the kind of films that we were interested in were being marginalized um, as commercial ventures. And so we said, you know, why don't we just uh, jump into this new, this new world? And, uh, and so it was written as a micro-budget. And that's a different thing 
than having a regular film, which, which then you recalibrate as a no-budget film. Uh, everything about the film, in terms of the locations, the dialogue, the action, you know, it was written for places we knew where we could work free. You know, the Chateau Marmont, stuff like that. So um, it was designed <laughs> to cost nothing. Were there any challenges uh, with that budget, or were there also things that you found it pushed you? you, you well, I mean, once you just basically say, we don't pay, yeah, then, you know, it clears the decks in many ways. You know, you, you pay, uh, uh, you, you can pay minimum wage. So that's about 100 bucks a day. And um, we only pay that during shooting, mm. not during prep. And uh, so, you know, people say, uh, <coughs> you know, permits and all this stuff, we, we don't pay. Mm. You know? And that's that. And uh, uh, it's fine with us if you, you know, you're not in our movie or not working with us, but we, we can't, you know. And so it's, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's a real freedom. And, and, you know, as I said to someone when we were casting, and, you know, and there was some question whether we should cast James Dean from the adult world and whether we should cast Lindsay with all of her history of, of, uh, of unreliability. Uh, and I said, look, you know, we're, we're putting our money in this. If you can't take a chance with your own money, <laughs> when can you take a chance? You know, I mean, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? We're going to lose our money. We're not even that much. <laughs> and so, yes, it was uh, freeing in that way. Were there any, like, aesthetic choices you made that you otherwise wouldn't have done? Well, virtually all of them. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're not paying for location mm. and somebody says, you know, you can shoot here, but you've got to pay us. They say, well, no, we're not going to shoot there. Well, that's an aesthetic choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and when... Um, when you when the cars in the film happen to be the cars that are owned by your crew members, well, that's an aesthetic choice too. <laughs> uh, fortunately, James owned a, an eighty thousand dollars sports car, so <laughs> so that worked out. Uh, and the gaffer had a Mercedes, you know, so we, we used that. So yes, those are all aesthetic choices, and uh, and you do have to get lucky. Uh, the main location was a, a house that we got through Kickstarter, which was filled with a museum quality mid-century modern furniture. Hmm. Uh, you know, you look at the film and you say, you know, the huge production design budget, you know, because that's all real hmm. stuff in there. It's not cheap stuff. But that just happened to be the house. Were you happy with the Kickstarter experience? Is it something you would do again? Yeah. I, <coughs> in fact, I'm so happy with it, I probably won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> because as time goes on, I'm realizing more and more how lucky we got. We got lucky with James and with Lindsay and with the shooting and the quality of the film, of the location, uh, and that, you know, were we to do it again, um, you know, odds are we wouldn't be so lucky. Mm. You know, it's like walking into a casino the first time and putting $10,000 on red and winning. Mm. And then the, the stupidest thing you can do at that point is bet again. Because you are never, ever going to get that $10,000 back mm. if, you, if you keep betting. So um, the temptation for me is say, hey, you know, 
we won on the first spin of the wheel, uh, let's walk away. <laughs> was was Brett happy with it? I mean, he's pretty vocal about. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he, he's a he can be ornery, and uh, but I, th I think he really is happy with it. Yeah. You know, um, he thinks uh, the movie is uh, too much me, and I think it's too much him. <laughs> so I guess that's a that's a a fair. Uh, uh, distribution of credit. <laughs> yeah, because he mentioned in that New York Times article that it's a Paul Schrader film. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like we'll... And I, I, I look at it, I think this is, this is really a Brett film. <laughs> this is the most Brett film I've ever seen. <laughs> and yet there is a relationship with some of your other films, like the comparison's been made to American Gigolo, and I'm wondering how you approach this as a... Well, I mean, certainly Gigolo was not on my mind when we, when we began, because Gigolo was a... a a lot of production design, a lot of uh, uh, expense and mm. sets and all of that. And, you know, and we were shooting in, in locations, you know, without permits. But the locations started falling in, and and I started seeing the movie. And as I saw it, I kept seeing the stuff from Jiggle. Um and uh, and I realized that about. To several days in that I was basically going back to that style mm. uh, to the extent that I could. Now it is a walk and talk movie, which is in order to do the film with that budget, dialogue heavy. Mostly just people in rooms talking. That's the cheapest thing you can do when you make a movie is have people talk. So people talk and then they walk, they drive around, you play some music, and then they talk again. Mm. So um, when you're doing a um, dialogue-driven film, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, it limits the amount of um, fancy footwork you can do with a camera when they're seated. Mm. Uh, if you can get them up on their feet, you can do a little bit more. Now, you've taken chances with your actors on this one. You've taken them in the past. How do you feel the performances kind of added up in this one with James and Lindsay and... Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, we got very lucky. I mean, I, I didn't, um, you know, we didn't really set out to cast either of them. Um, Lindsay was sort of a joke that when somebody, it was sort of a joke about her doing a cameo. The producer's friends with her manager and sent the script over Lindsay read the script and said, I don't want to do a cameo, I want to do a lead. Mm. All of a sudden that started to change. And, you know, we said to her, well, you know, you have to do your own hair and makeup, your own wardrobe, provide, you know, your own transportation. <laughs> uh, we'll give you free lunch, that's about it. And, um, and you know, and she became a 25% partner mm. in the film, and, and, and she will um, be reimbursed quite quite handsomely. Mm. Uh, and then Brad had this weird thing with James. Um, I thought it was all a joke, you know, when he started mentioning James. Um, and uh, and it, he had known James through his adult work, not personally. Mm. But he did tweet, he said, um, uh, I'm sort of basing this character I'm writing on the uh, male porn star James Dean. And uh, sure enough, James Dean tweeted back, <laughs> said, um, 
uh, I can't wait to read it. <coughs> so Brett and James had lunch, and, uh, and James is quite uh, impressive in person. A substantial guy, not a flake, or uh, smart and funny. His, both his parents teach at Caltech. Oh. <laughs> One is literally a rocket scientist, and the other is a cancer scientist. <laughs> um, so uh, he's a smart kid, good Jewish boy from Pasadena. And, um, and uh, so Brett said, uh, well, Schrader, uh, we'll give you a screen test. And I, I said, Brett, come on, really, please. This is such a joke. But, you know, he's my partner, and I had to do it. And um, it just went from one thing to the next. And he was good. He was good. And then, and then this notion, Brett has this notion of post-empire which is that we are now in the post-empire phase of our, our life, the same way the Brits were in the 19th century, and uh, early the 20th century. Um, and that we are living off detrius of the remains of our empire. Mm. And I thought, you know, what better way to do a kind of post-empire film? And the, the film is in fact called the Post-Empire Production. And to do it with a, somebody from the celebrity culture, somebody from the adult film culture, <laughs> and then you know, and a sort of um, uh, a controversial author and director, and uh, pick up these little pieces of trash from the boneyard and put them together and make a movie out of them. And so that's when the idea of James and Lindsay really started to get traction with me because I saw it as a kind of statement, hmm. or casting statement, rather than, and they, so it was not only saying, we think these two people are the most interesting, but we also think we're making that kind of statement about our culture by using them. Yeah. Well, there's like a meta-narrative, because it's about Hollywood and, and movie making, and it's got like, you've got your Robert Downey Jr. or your John Travolta figure, you know, on the upswing. You've got your yeah. adult film star making, or, or like a musician trying to cross over. Um, we're, we're in that sense, was the New York Times article almost perfect? Like, yeah, I mean, I, the, the Times article morphed. Uh, um, it originally began before Lindsay was involved, mm. so it was going to be an article about new methods of mm. uh, film financing and filmmaking. And uh, then Lindsay got involved, and so the new angle with the Times was the article was going to be about the new Lindsay. Mm. You know, we're gonna, this will showcase her return to respectability. Well, the new Lindsay never showed up. <laughs> uh, the old Lindsay showed up when she did. And so then it became an article about the old Lindsay. Um, not much you could do about that. Um, she does have a tendency to hijack things she is involved in. Uh, you know, if we, if we were doing an interview now with Lindsay and I, the entire interview would be about her, <laughs> because it would be, you know, formulated in such a way that everybody would be on pins and needles, mm. you know, and worry, you know. So, you know, when when you move into her orbit, you cannot escape the gravitational pull of that narcissism. Mm. There's a certain component, though, that you're on the vanguard of, of these new techniques, these new distribution techniques that maybe your peers in the 70s and 80s haven't, haven't got to that point as well. So that was a storyline. Well, um, 
Yes. I mean, uh, you know, it is. Um, I mean, I, I really hadn't planned to go to go here myself. Um, I'm 66 years old. I plan to, you know, ride into the sunset on that broken down horse <laughs> of the movies. I just didn't realize that the horse was 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 failing so fast, and that he, the horse wasn't even going to make it into the sunset. And that if I wanted to keep working, I would have to uh, think about uh, new strategies and new media. And um, and this sort of came up. Now, a number of people of my age are fooling around in this area, but not many. Mm. Uh, there's not many that still work. And if you can still put together uh, a decent budget film, um, you know, like Scorsese can, then of course that's what you're going to do. Yeah. If you're on the sort of cusp, like Phil Coffin and Walter Hill, you're trying, you know, so Walter Hill puts something together with Stallone. Phil Coffin was trying to do something like we just did, but I think he ran into trouble. I don't know if it's still on or off. Um, and of course, um, if you're in your 20s and you're doing a Kickstarter operation, uh, that's one kind of buzz. But, you know, doing it as, you know, an ARP member, <laughs> uh, um, you know, and uh, and I did not want this to feel like, you know, an old guy's film. It didn't feel to me like one. Brett's script didn't feel like one. I mean, I'm doing a, the next film I'm doing is going to be an old guy's film, hmm. the one with Nick Cage. But this was not. This was about uh, it's a, a film about kids even younger than Brett. Hmm. This is about the the blender grinder generation, you know, of all their the phone uh, hooking up with phone apps in that hmm. world. And uh, so I, uh, and I didn't think it was, and, and uh, you know, not feel about my generation at all. It doesn't feel that way to me. It's, it feels like with American Gigolo, though, that you're able to suss out that that's what's happening, that's what's changing. It's how well, I mean, I think a lot of that credit goes to Brett. Okay. I mean, because he's much more plugged into mm. uh, that world. Um, uh, yeah, and, and that world is plugged into him. Mm. So a guy like James Dean, uh, he was a Brett fan. <laughs> he was not a Paul Schrader fan. He didn't know who Paul Schrader was. So Brett is really kind of closer to that world than I am. And so you're shifting gears with the Nick Cage in, in what ways? He said it's an older man. Well, it's about a man uh, looking at, you know, Looking back at a life, mm. um, you know, um, it's about a an ex CIA agent who has um, early onset dementia and is trying to put together some things. Mm. So it's, it's it's by necessity autumnal. Are you at the stage where you're looking back, like when you're? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty hard not to. Mm. Um, you know, because at some point you start to wonder, you know, is this going to be my last film? Mm. Uh, and uh, I remember when I was shooting Adam Resurrected, 
I walked over to the cinematographer one day and I said, you know, if this is my last film, I think it's a pretty good one. You know, because you do think that way, you know. I mean, all it takes at my age is one meeting with a doctor and all of a sudden a doctor says to you, you know, I, th I think you better readjust your priorities in life, sir. sir. <laughs> so, you know, it can change pretty quick. Do you look at your kind of filmography, the way that when you were starting out you were reviewing, you were, you wrote Transcendental Style and you were, you know, observing a full body of work for these directors? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I mean, obviously you stumble through it, mm. but, you know, um, and not all the films I made I would make again, you know. I would not have gotten involved in that exorcist situation <laughs> if I had known what it would lead yeah. to. Um, and, uh, but by and large, the things I've done and been attracted to do have an element of provocation and originality. Um, you know, so often I go to movies and I look at the screen and I think to myself, how did they stay awake while they were making this movie? Because they've all made this movie ten times before. Mm. You know, they're just sitting here, you know, punching in and punching out. And, uh, and I have managed to stay away from that film. Uh, everything I've done I was trying to shake it up in some way. We were talking earlier about this film, Jesuit, and I got involved in that film. I wrote it because I wanted to make um, a Latin film. Mm. I wanted to do a Spanish, you know, a uh, Latin American film. And uh, in the end, it got made with, an, with another director who cast the Latin roles as Anglos. <laughs> But what had interested me about the film wasn't the plot, but was the fact that I could be, you know, trying to put my my sensibility into that of uh, a Latin American. Hmm. It almost made me think of your article on um, Peckinpah that you wrote when you were <laughs> an early critic, and and that's what's interesting to me. So, uh, transcendental style. Looking back on it now. Do you feel like you've, you've made a film no, that would no, fit I, into that? No, and I, I, I think I've intentionally stayed away from it. Yeah. Uh, those icy waters um, are for stronger stuff than I am. And, uh, you know, those filmmakers who can... The closest I ever came was, in a way, Light Sleeper, but it's still not. Those, um, that kind of anti-psychological realism. It takes, you really have to commit yourself to it. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I just like realism too much. I like mm. character, I like uh, psychological themes too much. When you start moving into transcendental style, you move away from a lot of the building blocks of storytelling into another kind of perception. And I guess in America, like, films require incident, more incident than maybe those the Japanese, the Ozu, the Brazilian. Well, I mean, it, it's not America. You, you, you can make those films in America. You can make them in Mexico. You know, um, uh, Carlos Rigada's mm. redid or dead. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, brilliantly. Uh, no, you, you, you can make them feel so. What it requires is a laser-like belief mm. that you, this will, you know, if you're Michael Haneke, you, you, you make that film, it's not that hard to make that choice. But if you're me, you're saying, I'm not really that guy. I can pretend to be Dreyer, I can pretend to be Bresson, I can pretend to be Michael Haneke, but I'm not really. And, um, and you know, so, yeah. Uh, so any more than I could pretend to be uh, Renoir, mm. I, I couldn't pretend to be Bresson. When you were entering into Blue Collar, what was your perspective? How did you see yourself as becoming a director versus now that you have the ability to look back at what you've done? Well, again, Blue Collar was something that, um, again, you were trying to break, break a mold. Had this idea of workers who would rob their own union as a kind of metaphor of self-defeatedness. And then the idea of two black guys and a white guy, which at that time was not done. Mm. And uh, whenever I told people I want to make this film, they would say, you mean two white guys and a black guy? I said, no, 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 because if it's two white guys and a black guy, the black guy has to be so good that he gets boring. But if it's two black guys, I can make one of the black guys kind of worse than the other, and I, I can get some nice character work in there. And, uh, and so, um, uh, and uh, you know, uh, you look back at it now, and it's not a big deal, but back then it was. I mean, it was right about the same time I had written a script for Jack Nicholson and Diana Ross. And uh, Barry Deller at Paramount would not make uh, an interracial movie. Huh. You know, he actually just said, they'll burn the theaters down if we, if we make this movie. Now that's not that long ago, that's 35 years ago. And you're thinking, uh, you know, you can't cast, you know, two of the hottest, sexiest stars in the entertainment world <laughs> together because they're not of the same race. And, and that kind of started your, I, you have a career that's basically hand in hand with your actors. Like I think every film has some story of incident with it. What were the lessons that you learned of just actually having to deal with actors for the first time based on that experience? Well, I mean, there is no simple lesson because, you know, actors are very different. Mm. Um, some like honesty, some don't like honesty. Some like intimacy, some don't like intimacy. Um, some want to be part of the process and some want to be instructed. Mm. And so there is no rule. You just sort of get to know the actor and their talent level and what they're good at. And, um, and you, you, sometimes you make mistakes. And you can see it right in their eyes, right away. You say, oh, you know, I shouldn't say that, you know. Um, or, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm making, you know, I'm, I'm making some progress here, I'm, I'm, and so, um, and uh, you know, I mean, what you need to do, obviously, is get them uh, far enough out of their comfort zone so that they're doing something that is really interesting mm -hmm. to them. 
but not so far out of their comfort zone that they're not doing work that uh, they respect. Yeah. Is it particularly hard when you're close to the, when it's a personal script, like something like Hardcore, which seems to have a lot of your own life in it? Uh, by the time you make it, it's not personal at all anymore. I mean, it's almost, when you're writing it, it starts to feel kind of personal. Mm. But by the time you've made it, there's been so much planning and so much division of labor that it's almost like watching something apart from yourself. You know, and occasionally when you're making it, you get all of a sudden, you get a little glimpse, a little hit of, oh, that's me. That's why I wanted to do that. But mostly it's, it's all become this other entity. Mm. And, but then when it's all over, uh, and you look back at it, and so much of what a director's personality is, is just rapid fire decision making. Because when you're directing, you're making decisions very, very fast all day long. And every little thing is a decision. The cup here, the cup here, this here, like this. Higher register, lower register, whatever. Um, and, uh, and you're making decisions so fast that you're making them instinctively for the most part. Um, you know, actors will point that out to you, saying, you know, you, you know you're telling me to do something that you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you look back at the film, at the tens of thousands of decisions that were made in a concentrated time frame. And you say, well, I guess that's who I am. That's my signature. I mean, only a fraction of these decisions were made that consciously. Mm. If you had asked me at the time, I'm, I would have told you I'm putting the camera here because of a sightline problem. But the truth is I was putting my camera there because that's where I, I like to put it. And I came up with a sightline problem in order to move myself over there. You know, it's just like, uh, well, the, the first film I made, I realized that whenever I went to a location to set up an establishing shot, I always said, the, the establisher is over here. And the cinematographer was always saying, the establishers over here. And I said, Bobby, I said, what? Well, he was left-handed. <laughs> I was right-handed. So I'd walk over and say, okay, here's the establishing. He'd walk over to the same spot and say, no, here's the establishing. So, <laughs> you know, it's that simple. Have you noticed, like, a kind of aesthetic choice that comes up more, than, more often than not? I notice that your films tend to have establishing shots that are high angle. Um, yeah, I mean, there are you know, certain angles you fall into. You know, a Kubrick is always going to go low and wide. Uh, uh, you know, and central. Yeah. You know, a Kubrick composition. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be completely ge geometrical. It's going to be about a, about a 14 millimeter, and mm. it's going to be slightly below the eye line. Uh, and so you, you do sort of fall into a pattern. Uh, but at the same time, you have to um, remain completely open to seeing something. Uh, and much of the work that good directors do is done right on the spot. All of a sudden, they see something. Mm. You walk in, and they start blocking. 
and you have some ideas you've worked out. In fact, you may even have worked on some storyboards, but all of a sudden you see something. You know, the actor walks this way, turns that way, and now it's like, wait a second, wait a second, you know, something's happening here. Uh, and you cannot close yourself off to that. Um, and so, I, I mean, that's the great danger of storyboarding, is that it uh, uh, <laughs> starts to predict, mm. you know, physical movement in, in a way that uh, is not very creative. Your films do tend to have a, like a set piece camera movement shot, though, be it like a long steady cam shot, a, a crane shot, and cat people going up and down through the. Well, I mean, I think that's uh, an expression of budget as well as anything mm. else. You know, when you don't have all the toys, you know, when you're when you have to pick and choose your toys. Well, then you have, you say, okay, we'll, we'll get this shot. We'll bring in a crane. It'll take a half day. This will be our big glory shot. And then we'll just clean it up afterward. If you have all the toys, you can do one shot like that after another all day long. Um, and they don't quite stand out as much mm. because um, the whole film is one kind of Spielbergian uh, move after another. But when you can only afford to do one move like that a day, it stands out a bit more. Which film would you say has the most kind of fluidity and, and set piece shots that you've done? I think uh, Comfort of Strangers. Yeah. That was a film that you set out to be specifically an aesthetic yeah. film. Yeah, that was to be, you know, a film of, of appearances mm. in the way that Pinter writes about language. You know, it's the guys. It was kind of following Light of Day, which didn't have that same kind of insistent look. No, I, I think I made a mistake with Light of Day. And I, I think I tried to do it a little too far real. I mean, I, I, was, I was in a place where I was m much more artificial, and then I backed up and tried to do something kind of kitchen sinky. Mm. And... Uh, and it didn't quite work because I really wasn't in the kitchen sink mindset, yet I was doing it, and um, and and uh, I had some problems with the casting, and I wasn't happy with that. So it was one of those films where you you start to feel, and you're in the film, that, that it's just a, such an uphill grind. Mm. And of course, we all convince ourselves while we're working that it's going to come out, work out. I mean, you, you can't go to work every day if you don't, if you think it's not going to work out. So you, you can sell yourself almost anything. But there's always sort of part of you that's saying, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're climbing uphill on this one. And maybe we'll pull it off and maybe we won't. Outside of Light of Day, is there any other film that that defined the uh, Well, I mean, I knew that, um, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew that I was in trouble with Forever Mine. I knew I was losing that battle. Um, I knew I was in trouble with Woody hmm. on Walker. I, I knew that, that it wasn't what I, what I wanted it to be. Uh, and then on, on other occasions, you know, you just see that it's happening, mm. you know, like with Affliction, you know, I knew fairly early on that we were in the groove. Yeah. And it would take 
really something bad to throw us out of the group. Everybody was in the groove. Whereas other films, you're not in the groove, you get in it, and you say, oh, and boom, you're out of it again. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but there is, um, you know, there's something that uh, feels right creatively in certain films. And, and a lot of it, it doesn't have to do with, uh, with the, uh, the comfort of the logistics. I mean, Canyons was a kind of a nightmarish experience in just dealing with uh, the financial uh, reality and, and Lindsay's high-maintenance world. But it always felt right. Mm. And she and James felt right. You know, if you could only get them in front of the camera. <laughs> Once you got them there, it worked. Um, whereas, you know, I'd much rather have that problem than the other one, which is they're always there. And, they're all, and they're, they all want to do take 10. <laughs> but it's not working. Yeah. You don't know how to make it work. You know, you do. And finally, in the end, you don't, it never really works. You just convince yourself it does. Mm. Was everything clicking with American Gigolo? Because that's one that I always come back to. Not only it was a success. I, I think so. I mean, that was, you know, it was a, a piece of stylized. And, and it was looking forward into a kind of culture thing. Um, you know, I mean, Gear said to me afterward, because you know, I, I, I had told him that I said I think there's a kind of new male narcissism in clothes that's that's coming and getting away from this kind of Saturday Night Fever thing. And uh, I ran to him a few years later, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I never believed you when uh, when you would tell me that, but it, is, it turned out to be true. And and so when you get into a kind of gestalt like that, when you sense we are, you know, we're in the curve, we're in the culture curve. Um, they did us a good feeling. And actors feel it, uh, and production people feel it. They feel like, you know, we're doing something interesting. Mm. It's also a kind of marker for a lot of the themes that would come up in your films. There's the lonely man component, there's that Dante, Beatrice obsession. Um, how much of that is conscious when you're writing it? How much of it is just coming out because that's... Both, uh, and uh, when you're younger, there's a kind of adolescent, sophomoric desire to make it more conscious. Mm. Um, and then you look back at that later and you say, "Ooh, you know, you wince." You know, says, I didn't need to. You know, I didn't need to. To, to be that obvious, it's there. It mm. is simply there. Um, I was just trying to prove to my teachers and my professors how smart, what a good student I was. I should have just kept my mouth shut and, you know, let them figure it out or not figure it out. But uh, that desire for highbrow approval uh, can get you in trouble. Mm. You know. Uh, and uh, and particularly someone like myself, who is um, has a background in criticism and tends to be articulate, uh, you know, it's a bit problematic because so often the smartest thing is nothing. Mm. You just don't, you know, like John Ford, you know, you don't say a thing. 
and you know they'll figure it out sooner or later. Mm. Uh, you don't need to help them figure it out. But you know, my generation, being a film school generation, is much more tempted, you know, because the survival mechanism for a man like Ford is keep your mouth shut, <laughs> and you'll survive. Keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, and don't pretend you're doing anything other than making money. Uh, whereas my generation, being the post-Nouvelle Vague, is sort of the opposite. Call attention to yourself, tell everybody what you're up to, you know, tell them how important it is. You've said that it's a film where like, the visuals finally caught up with the writing, like you were paying equal attention to them. What, what clicked on that one? What changed from, say, hardcore? Oh, I mean, I began to, I began to understand visual logic. Yeah. The difference between illustrating and being. Um, if you are not raised in a world of visual logic, you tend to illustrate. You know, so you know, so if um, if you think beautiful sunset, then you go get a beautiful sunset. Well, that's an illustration. That's not really the thing itself. It's a, it's a, a marker for the thing. Mm. What actually is a beautiful sunset, really? You know, it may not be a sunset at all. You know, and when you start to really think visually, you stop thinking about illustrations and you're thinking about the parade of images and the logic involved and what does it actually mean? What does that mean? When I put it next to this, what does that mean? And if I go back and forth, what is the third meaning of that? And it is not paper cup, glass cup. Those are words. What it is is something about the iconography of these two images that speaks to visual logic. And it has not a lot to do with literary logic or verbal logic at all. Is there like a key example of that in American Gigolo where it kind of clicked? Where you, you begin, you know, you begin to see certain things compositionally. Like uh, two films that really influenced Gigolo. One was obviously Conformist, mm. but also Leclise by Antonioni. And all of those shots where Antonioni is sort of behind the head and kind of drifting back and forth. And then the shots where people would be like this, they would turn like this. Um, and you start to see that. And you see that what Antonioni is talking about is not about character, but it's about form and shape as reflective of, of the visual emotion, what you're dealing with. You know, and so that when Monica Vitti looks at you this way and she turns ever so slightly, it's not the character that's doing that. It's the image that's doing that. It's also a film where you have maybe pretty key collaborators. You had uh, the art designer yeah. and, the, and the score. Yeah. Part of the thinking of making Gigolo original in terms of Los Angeles, which is you know, a greatly photographed town, was to bring in talents from Europe. So the um, production design came from Italy, and the music actually came from Italy, although it's, uh, Giorgio Moroder is, um, is 
Swiss, but he's from the Italian part of Switzerland. And so you're getting that kind of techno beat, which is a very European sound, and then those visuals, which is very European. You have the same collaborators on Cat People, but it's a very different film. I mean, is that coming down to the script, the fact that it's a genre film? What um, yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, that, uh, you know, the essential visual element of Gigolo is Los Angeles, and therefore kind of modernism, whereas the essential visual element of Cat People is New Orleans, and therefore a certain Victorianism, you know, both in the zoo and in the the streets mm. and, uh, and the architecture, and that starts to bleed through the film. And cat people didn't have that same success, though. Like, I'm curious, even well, now. Well, I mean, I actually, um, artistically, I, 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 at this point, I think I would probably prefer cat people. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, it, um, it it didn't, you know sort of catch on to the zeitgeist in mm. that way. But uh, I saw it again uh, last fall. I, I really uh, surprised how well it held up, especially in its analog, you know, it's a pre-digital world of, uh, of analog effects and all of that. And it had a kind of provocative ending that maybe now that doesn't draw so much attention. I, I, think, it's, I think the ending will still be problematic. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I mean, um, I think it would be more problematic. Uh, I, I think we're, you know, we're, well, certainly in movies, we're, we're more prudish now than we were then. Um, you know, certain television is, is breaking free, and it's kind of ironic that, that shows like Girls and Game of Thrones are more outre than anything that you can put in a theater. Uh, and they're all NC-17 shows. Yeah. You can't even do them in theaters. But uh, this, this the notion, and, um, and I, I don't even know whether they would have been allowed to do it in a commercial film. Because the original script, the monster is subdued and is burnt up in a, a, a burning building, you know, in a kind of conventional old dark house sort of way. And uh, I thought, I said, wouldn't it be more interesting, rather than kill the monster, which he loves, that he make love to the monster and turn it into a shrine that he can keep uh, in his zoo. Well, that still is a, a kind of kinky idea because it not only involves um, forced sex, it also involves zoophilia and bondage and a kind of primitive uh, animal cult religion, you know, and David Bowie sort of going off in this <laughs> chant. Um, and. Uh, and uh, and I, we, we never previewed the film. It was interesting. And I remember when we opened in Westwood Village, and I went to a early screening, or seven o'clock screening. I went with Jerry Bruckheimer, who was the producer. 
and we were sitting in back, and there were two girls in front of us who were maybe 17 or so. And, um, and that ending came up, and one turned the other and simply went, oh my God. And I was sitting right here, and Jerry, I said to Jerry, I said, I think we went too far. <laughs> but I'm really glad we did. Yeah. Uh, and if we had previewed it, I, we, you know, it would have. Uh, that's probably why we didn't preview it because we didn't have another ending. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and you know th that was still a time when uh, when you could intimidate the studio a little more into getting your version. But that was your last studio picture for a while, right? My last studio picture ever. <laughs> Did it free you in a way to do Mishimo? Is that something that you could even conceive of? No, no, no. Of? I mean, I, I moved on to Mishimo because I had a disruption in my life. Mm. And all the, the life I had known sort of had come apart. And I left Los Angeles and, and I had to kind of start over again. And I, one of the ways I started over was getting married, becoming a parent, and moving to Japan mm. and getting out of drugs. And, uh, and when I got back from Japan, uh, I realized that the industry has, had, had changed and that the films I had been making were no longer being made by studios and that the independent movement had begun. And I mean, there's a really interesting financial backstory for how Mishima was made, right? Like, wasn't that a bit of a hustle getting the co Well, I mean, there, yeah. I mean, I, every, every film in a way is a... Uh, has has have these tales, but uh, uh, you know, uh, Mishima knew uh, the people who financed the movie. You know, claimed they didn't finance it. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a I had a, a Japanese producer. Mati Yamamoto, and he had an anime company, and he had, we had gotten involved in pre-production, he had spent about a million dollars, and George Lucas and Francis Coppola had gotten Warner Brothers to match, and we had a commitment of, from Fuji Toa for two and a half, and then Warner's would match that. Well, when I started, um, when the widow realized exactly what consultation rights meant because I had led her to believe that in fact her opinion would be um, final but in fact all she had was consultation rights and uh, and she wanted all references to homosexuality taken out and, and I, I didn't do that so so then she turned up and she called up her friends in the old boy right-wing network and uh, and uh, and then uh, the guy from uh, Fuji, you know, went to Mata Yamamoto and said, uh, you know, we promised you two and a half million dollars. Uh, we will not be able to, you know, live by this commitment. Now, there, are, there is no paperwork in Japan, so it's all a matter of honor. And, um, and what, you know, Mata said essentially was, um, I put a million dollars in this film. If you renege, if you go back on your word to me, 
I will become bankrupt and uh, at that point I will do what I have to do to make sure my children uh, survive. Which in Japan was a kind of code language for if I kill myself, my debts don't move on. I don't know if that's still the case, but it was at that time that you could kind of clean up your debts for your children by, by, by committing suicide. So the guy from Fuji, he doesn't hear, oh, poor Mata's going to die. He hears, oh, fuck. If he, does, if he kills himself because we lied to him, no one will ever do business with <laughs> us again. And then I'm next. <laughs> I'm going to have to go myself. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, several weeks later, he met with the, with the Fuji people in Kamakura and they gave him two and a half million dollars in a suitcase. Mm -hmm. uh, and to this day, they claim they didn't. <laughs> but of course, it's never been shown in Japan because in fact, Toho still has the rights and they will not. Um, let it be shown and they will not let it be, you know, put out on DVD or anything. Mm. Although, it's, you know, it's been widely distributed sub rosa. And when the film was at Cannes, uh, Toho Toa had a, had at their reception, I went to, went to the reception and I said to uh, Kawakita, who's the head of it, I want to thank you for helping Mishima get made. And he looked me right in the eye and said, we had nothing to do with that film. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, thanks anyway. <laughs> so that was a, a kind of peculiar situation because Warner Brothers was only involved as a favor to George and Francis. Is that um, they had uh, angered George Lucas over THX. And this was a way to make, it, make up to George. So that's all they cared about was buying a favor from George. So they didn't care about the film. Mm. So that's a, that was a two and a half million dollar favor. They, were, they thought it was worth paying George for. The Japanese, they didn't invest either. <laughs> so now I'm making this five million dollar film, which is a 60 someday schedule, a big film, and nobody's paid for it. And also no one's going to see it mm. because it will never be shown in Japan. And it'll be a foreign language film in the rest of the world. <laughs> and Warner's it has no real interest in this film either. So I'm out there making a film that no one's paid for, that no one will see. And uh, actually, rather than being free, that was a bit intimidating. Mm. Because normally, you know, as a director, you always convince yourself that you're making compromises because you don't have a choice. Saying, oh, we got to sell some tickets, so we're going to have to do this chase sequence here. But in fact, when you realize you're not going to sell any tickets, it means you don't have to do anything you don't <laughs> want to do. That is, in fact, more frightening, you say, because you, you, there's no kind of fallback excuse. Say, well, we got to show a little nudity here because people are going to want to see that. Oh. So, it, uh, and, and also with that particular film, it was such a puzzle box of a film that, um, that I, there were very few of us, maybe two or three at the most, who actually understood what was going down. To everybody else, it was just a kaleidoscope of unrelated elements, you know, because there were so many different levels of reality we were doing simultaneously.
At one point, didn't someone on the crew say that if you died, no one would know how to make the film or put the film together? But no, I mean, there's someone on the crew did, but I, I thought that to myself. <laughs> because you always think when you're directing, gee, you know, if I got hit by a car, you know, well, the, well, the, you know they could put this together. You know, we're close enough to the end now. And I remember I was directing, I think, geez, if I got hit by a car, I don't think anybody would know how to put this thing together. <laughs> You, uh, you quoted Rossellini once, and it's something that I thought might have applied, which is that when you're dealing with someone's life, uh, kind of biopic to a point, the only part you can invent is the structure. Was that kind of how you approached this? Like your, your fabrication being how you structure the... Yeah. That, um, you know, human lives are not necessarily that dramatic. And most of the time, you go into history and you create a, a kind of phony, dramatic arc in order to give a life or a narrative that it doesn't that it didn't have. Uh, in this case, I had I couldn't do anything that I couldn't prove, um, and so I realized that the. Um, that the originality, the creativity, is the assembly of the pieces rather than the distortion of the pieces. And uh, so started coming up with this um, uh, four-part structure with three cross-hashed realities. And it's a hugely ambitious venture, especially when you look at the art direction, the score. Did, were you aware of that at the time? How? Uh, well, it was, it was exciting. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, you know, when you're doing something that you've not seen done before, it's not really that intimidating. It's just so exciting. Uh, uh, I mean, in a way, it's more intimidating to do something that you've seen done a dozen times before. And you say, you know, well, we'll have to figure out in the editing some way to make <laughs> this work. But. Um, uh, you know, when you're doing something, that's kinda, you're just going, wow, that's cool, that's cool. <laughs> you know, that is cool. In a sense, well, Let's do another take out one. I just want to see that again. <laughs> in a sense, it's become kind of your canonized work. Is that something you're comfortable with? Yeah, I think so, in a way. Um, just because it is so one of a kind. Uh, you know, there's nothing quite like it. And, and uh, yeah. I, I, I want to talk about it in relation to Patty Hearst because that's a film of yours that is kind of the opposite. It's kind of lapsed into oblivion. Or it's got a VHS. It's hard to see. Yeah, I've been trying to get Criterion to fucking <laughs> release that. Um, yeah. It's got, it's got similar experimental tones to it, I think. That yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, again, now, when you talk about Patty Hearst, again, it's one of those situations where I got involved in the film because other people were intimidated by it. So like, Come to Strangers, Schlesinger was gonna do it, but Schlesinger didn't think he could get it, pull it off. He dropped it. Adam Resurrected, they tried to get uh, a number of directors, and the director said, you can't do that. Lumet said, you can't make that work. Sidney mm -hmm. Pollock said, you can't make that work. Uh, and I said, why not? You know, that's really interesting. Uh, autofocus, um, you know, how can you make a, 
film about this creepy guy. So <laughs> in Patty Hearst, the project came to me because they couldn't get a director. Because the directors were saying, the first half of the movie isn't takes place in a closet. How do I shoot a movie where the character is in a closet? You know, how do I dramatize that? Um, and I read it and I said, wait a second, if she's in the closet and she's blindfolded, that means that all she really knows of reality is what she imagines it to be. And therefore, for the first half of the movie, there are no restrictions on reality. You just go into her imagination and recreate uh, an equivalent reality. It doesn't have to be the real reality at all. Um, and for that reason, the first half of the movie is actually very interesting. The second half, once she gets out of the closet, it becomes less interesting mm -hmm. because then you're kind of stuck in the actual reality uh, of the world rather than the reality of a frightened, paranoid prisoner. Now, at this point, you're starting to move. You mentioned Comfort of Strangers. You're moving into more adaptations, and I'm curious how you approach something like Elmer Leonard and Touch or Pinter slash McEwen in, in Comfort of Strangers. Um, you know, I mean, you know, very few. I'm trying to think if there's our, the only adaptation that I put together myself was Affliction. And I found that book, I contacted Russell Banks, got the rights, wrote the script, got the, put the film together. Mm. The others, whether it be Pinter or Leonard, uh, were projects that were out there um, that were having trouble mm. getting a, uh, a director because of what was perceived to be the, the difficulty or the uncommerciality of the material. And, um, and it, it's like, well, it's like Avid Bleiberg, who produced Adam Resurrected, he told me that they had gone out with the script to a number of the usual candidates, Mary Levinson, Mark Rydell, Lumet and Pollock, and they all had turned it down, said, you can't do this. You can't, the man, the dog, it doesn't work. And he said that he was meeting with an ICM who represented me at the time. And he said to them, well, don't you have any clients who aren't afraid of doing something? And Jeff Berg said to him, well, you know, Schrader, he'll do almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you should send it to him. You know, he'll probably do it. Um, and when I read it, I, all I thought was, wow, this is really invigorating. I didn't think, you know, this won't make a dime and this will be a career killer. Uh, because if I had thought like that, I wouldn't have made half the films I ever mm. made. I mean, I knew Mishmael wasn't going to make it. I, I had this conversation once with Sidney Pollack because we were talking about something and Sidney says, you know, uh, he had this company, Mirage, at the time. And he said, you know, the young filmmakers come in here and they regard me as old and square. But I see them and I think that I'm not really that different from them. And he said, do you really feel that you're different from me, you know, in that way? 
And I said, well, sending I said, I, I've made two films that I knew before principal began would lose money. And in both cases, I, I thought it was worth it to do it, whatever the career re repercussions. I said, would you do that? And he smiled. He said, no, I would never do that. <laughs> if I knew a film was going to lose money before I started, I wouldn't start. <laughs> what were the two films? Mishima and Patty Hearst. Patty Hearst, yeah. Uh, I knew in both cases that they were doomed. Um, but going back to the adaptation point, I, I thought it's interesting that you men mentioned Adam Resurrected. It seems like you were kind of challenged, like there was a bet, like could you even pull this off? And it's kind of how we were describing Affliction that you, you wrote and you handled it, whereas it seems like Touch and Comfort of Strangers, maybe it doesn't, they don't add up in the same way that those other two films well, do. Well, I mean, uh, now Russell Banks' sensibility is very, very close to mine. And, and in a way, I was doing myself when I was doing Russell. Yeah. Um, Dutch Leonard, Harold Pinter, that, that's a different sensibility, and I'm trying to get into their groove. Mm. Uh, uh, and uh, the same way I get into Brett Easton Ellis's groove. Uh, so, yeah, it's a little different in that way. Uh, because you're, you're trying to knock off Leonard, and other people have done it. It's just about everybody's done it. <laughs> and very few have done it successfully. And uh, I guess I'm one of those who hasn't done it successfully, although a lot of that has just to do with the, the, the material, because that was the, that's the only book Leonard ever wrote that didn't make money. <laughs> so uh, uh, it was kind of doomed from the beginning. Uh, but you know, Leonard is hard to do. Yeah. I mean, I think there must be a dozen Elmore Leonard films. There's only one or two that are really good. What are the ones you like? Well, Get Shorty. Yeah. And the one that quit and did, uh, they changed the title. Jackie Brown? It's called Jackie Brown, yeah. yeah. Well, Rum Punch. Rum yeah. Punch, Rum Punch. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, that's about it, really. I, I'm always surprised that Light Sleeper resonated as much as it did. It's a really great film, but I, I'm curious if you, wh how did you approach that film that was coming off of, um, you had just finished uh, Comfort of Strangers, or was I'm not quite sure. Um, you know, that was a, a script I had written, uh, one I really felt strongly about. Mm. That was a film that uh, I ended up putting a quarter of a million dollars into, which was all the money, disposable money I had at that time. Uh, you know, because we ran short. We were in pre-production and it looked like we were two to three weeks away from a deal. Well, once you stop pre-production, everything stops. Mm. So I just kept funding pre-production and fortunately the deal came through and I got the money back and we continued on. Uh, but uh, so I mean, obviously I you know, felt very, very strongly. Uh, in, in, in making that film. At what point did, did the lonely man concept become crystallized in your mind? Well, I mean, from the beginning, it was the guy in the back seat. So the taxi driver was in the front seat. Now this character's in the back seat, and he's being driven around. So you're moving from an actor to a passive character. 
and that was essential to the idea. You got, you're moving from an angry young man who's trying to make the world fit his fantasies to a middle-aged guy who feels there's no place for him left. Mm. So it's a, it's a real front seat, back seat kind of situation, both in New York City, but different point of view. And were you reflecting on your own uh, life at that point? Because you used to write at night, you used to kind of lead that nocturnal existence that like American Gigolo had or Taxi yeah. Driver. And the woman well, and also, well, it's a lot of it was about the, the, the drug culture. Yeah. And uh, about, you know, people that I knew in that world. Um, I've told this story before, I'll tell it again. It was the only film that, a script that came to me in a dream, which is I had been thinking about doing a midlife movie. You know, a movie about somebody that's about 40. And, uh, and I couldn't get the idea. I went through a lot of cliches and the guy who quits his job and the professor who runs off with a student and the guy who decides to become a race car driver, whatever. <laughs> and they just wasn't doing it. And I started giving up on the search for the uh, midlife metaphor. And then uh, I was dreaming one night and in the dream, this drug dealer that I had known, John, came, uh, we were talking, and he was uncomfortably close. His face was really right in mine in the dream. And I woke up abruptly because he was, had invaded my dream space. I said, wow, wow, was that vivid. Whew! I hadn't thought about him in, in a couple of years, and he was right, right there. What? What were we talking about in the dream? And then I realized that he was asking me about the movies. He asked me if any movies I had seen, what I liked. I said, yeah, well, that's right. He's my guy. I couldn't find him. So he finally came into my dream life and found me. The 40-year-old dr drug delivery boy whose boss who is going to quit and he has no skills and needs to find another job. That's a midlife crisis <laughs> that I can really get behind. Now, there's a true midlife crisis, a uh, very original one. And, uh, and uh, so I got up from bed and went in my office and started making notes to myself. And uh, by the end of the day, I picked up the phone and started calling around. And I found this guy. He was still working. Uh, and I went over and... Uh, met with uh, uh, his boss, Cynthia, was, they were both still working at that time. And I went over and I met with them and uh, we talked to them. I said, I'm going to do this movie about you, I'll write this script about you. And, and, um, uh, uh, and then, then uh, you know, and I started going on rounds with John, you know, just sort of researching it and it all came quite quickly. And uh, but Cynthia was still, she was a little, you know, do we really want you to do this movie about <laughs> us? And, and she, then she called me up a few days later and said, I said uh, that I was talking to Michael White. And Michael White, I said, I talked to Michael White and I talked to Bernardo Berlucci. And they both said, oh, you're okay. So, okay. <laughs> 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 and uh, so, so that's how that happened. 
Was, was Willem Dafoe's character named after Bruno Latour? That's something that I've always wondered. No, no, it was just after traveling. Hmm. You know, uh, it was a way, somebody who, a drifter. Yeah. yeah. Somebody who's on the tour. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a painter, uh, George Latour. Yeah. Uh, and people have said that, but no, it was just a name that was evocative of drifting. Just like Travis is traveler, tour is a tourist. Yeah. The reason I thought of it is because of this actor network theory where it's like uh, he's someone that's traversing between all of these people, and it's something that kind of uh, resonates with the conspiracy or the mystery stories that tend to go with these, like American Gigolo. And I'm wondering why you drift towards that story when you're dealing with these types of characters? Well, I, you know, it gets down to this, what I call this uh, monocular vision, which is when you have a character who is slightly disreputable or not, has a, a conventional approval rating, a drug dealer, a gigolo, a, a psychopath, um, you know, there's going to be a resistance for viewers to empathize. And one of the ways you get around that is you close off the other eye so that you only see the world through one, one eye, and the, your character's eye. So any other reality doesn't exist. And if you can make that world interesting enough, long enough, associations will start to develop and people will start to uh, empathize, understand the character and then, then you can get somewhere. Um, but what that means is that you can't have external points of view. Every single scene has to be, here he is, he, he goes here, he looks 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 here. You can't step back and say, there he is from an objective lens. Because you see him from an objective lens, you say, what a creep. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so you have to stay inside the monocular eye line. Were you intending to kind of close this, this story off with the walker? Was that meant to be like a kind of coda to? Yeah, I think so. Yeah? I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I am going to do an older guy now, but I mean, not this guy. And also, I made a joke to somebody once, I said, well, Maybe I should do one more. Bit about a guy who, who runs an elevator. <laughs> I take him up, I take him down. Doesn't matter to me. <laughs> but it's you know it's harder and harder to find interesting um, uh, drifting occupations for senior citizens. <laughs> and it's a film that it seems it looks different than any other of your films. It has way more handheld stuff. It kind of has a European co-pro look. Like. Is it, were those choices you were deliberately Yeah, make? I mean, you know, well, film style has been changing. And, uh, and uh, so that was a, a post-shaky cam movie. Yeah. And some of that, when you do bungee cam, bungee long lens, you know. Um, you know, I mean, I, I had developed a very kind of classical style. But, you know, that's all gone now. And there is no... There is no classical style anymore. Mm. You know, anything goes. 
uh, editing-wise, lighting-wise, camera-wise. You can put anything you want next to each other. Uh, and one of the things I realized when shooting canyons, I was trying to find a style. I said, wait a second, there is no style anymore. And, there, and this, this guy from Montreal, this young kid, uh, Xavier Dolan, yeah. had, had made this film Heartbeats. And I liked the film, I looked at it again, and I realized, I said, he's going from scene to scene, changing his style based on the scene. He did a Godardian thing, and now he's doing a Hollywood thing, and now he's doing a kind of Berlucci thing. He keeps, and now he's doing a pseudo-doc thing. He keeps changing, and he doesn't really care that one scene doesn't match the scene before it. And I said, there's nothing wrong with it. That's where we are. That's the new kind of style. You don't, so if you, you know, you can do one scene, complete mise-en-scene, dolly to dolly, and do the very next scene, handheld multi-gun, and put them right next to each other, and nobody cares anymore. Mm. Is, and that's what you've done with canyons. You've yeah, I mean, like, there's a you know, um, there is a um, there's a Berlucci scene followed by a Cassavetti scene. <laughs> it seems like it's a, a self-reflexive film. Like, are you are you finding that your films are getting a bit more? Like, I, I found that with Adam Resurrected. Maybe it's the black and white. Maybe it's the period. Like no, the flashbacks. No, I, I don't. No, uh, I mean it could be there, but. Uh, you know, particularly with canyons, you know, I, I was really trying to get into Brett's world, and you know, and James and Lindsay's world, and not try to get them into my world. Have you thought about with this new Nick Cage one how you're going to shoot it? At what point does that enter into the equation? Well, I've been thinking about it. I, I just, uh, I just looked at this movie uh, primer. Mm, yeah. All that long lens stuff, all that long lens completely backed off. So I, I bought the DVD and said, oh, look at the, keep this DVD around, look at this stuff, you know, because everything is uh, 200, 250. Um, and normally I've always shot right here, mm. you know. But maybe I said, maybe this one, shoot in the back. Um, the, uh, because, uh, you know, I, I'm much more interested in films that adapt themselves to their material rather than, you know, have this kind of, this is what Hitchcock does and therefore it looks like this. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, to me, the great film genius uh, of Kubrick is the fact that he seemed to be able to reinvent himself visually. Uh, granted, there are certain things he always did. But, you know, he comes up with Barry Lyndon, that's a different world. Mm. Um, and uh, so, you know, that idea of, uh, of a fungible uh, film style, I find more interesting. Although, of course, you know, film critics love it when, when somebody locks themselves in a cage and, and uh, you say, oh, that, that's, that's Hawks. Hawks <laughs> would do that shot. <laughs> yeah, do you think that that's going to affect or has affected your reception, like the auteurist studies that tend to privilege that? Um, not really. Um, I, I do think that, um, I think that if I 
over the years had kept my mouth shut a little more, it probably would have helped. <laughs> I don't think I did myself any favors by telling people what I was up to. Mm. Um, you know, just like this current film, Beyond the Pines. Beyond the Pines. This guy, how do you pronounce his name? Chiam Francis? Yeah. Whoever. You know, I was reading some interviews again. And, oh, I said, oh, boy, you should just shut up. <laughs> you should just shut up because it's a very ambitious film. It's a very pretentious film. Just shut up and, you know, go to default mode and say, well, I didn't. I was just trying to tell a story. You know? <laughs> I was just trying to make some money. I didn't know. I, I didn't know I was doing anything of value. <laughs> you know, that, that famous John Ford interview with Bogdanovich. Mm, yeah. But then again, the the critic turned filmmaker is a, a a myth that people like. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Oh, okay. Great. Mysterious for me about drugs. Did you notice a strange feature? about drugs, which is that first they are, of course, the idiosyncrasy, creativity of language. But at the same time they are totally objectified in the sense that it's count against the nature of joke of jokes to say now I will produce or invent a joke. joke a joke is somehow always already here. You say did you hear that joke? You tell jokes. I mean, you know what I mean? Jokes just Oh, 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 o